Welcome to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We're talking about disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. In this episode of the show, Occupational Therapy Consultant and Pediatric Professionals Collaborative Director, Adrian Miao, connects with Michael Shore. Michael Shore is an autistic psychologist, an advocate for people with autism, and a member of the Community Advisory Council to the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. Let's listen. My name is Adrian Miao. I'm one of the CDCI um, core function coordinators. I'm the community services coordinator, and I work as an OT consultant on several of the projects with the I-Team, the Continents Project, and Peds Pro. And I'm very excited to be joined today by Michael Shore. Michael, do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, not at all. Um, uh, in terms of the the Center for Disability and Community Inclusion at UVM. Um, I'm on the their Community Advisory Council, um, which is basically a place where people with different um, relationships and perspectives around disability um, participate in um, shaping what that um, organization does. Um, and um, but otherwise, apart from that, um, I'm a person on the autism spectrum and uh, with a number of various neurodevelopmental diagnoses like um, ADHD and um, various sort of um, subtler differences with uh, motor function and things like that. Um, I um, uh, professionally, um, my sort of main job is I'm a psychotherapist. Um, I work out of a practice called St. John's Bray Psychology Associates with uh, people across the state. And um, uh, aside from that, I've also been working with the UVM Autism Collaborative and um, doing a certain amount of consulting and facilitation with um, some community-based research projects related to the autism spectrum. Um, so that that's professionally. Um, yeah. Um, and did your question cover other areas too? Or if you'd like to share anything about your personal interests or what you're engaged with this winter, that would be fine too. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so personal interest, um, sorry for getting a little off camera here. Um, I am um, really actually quite interested in a lot of things. Um, I'm a, I call it scientifically minded person, um, but really I'm interested really in the whole science, technology, arts, and um, sort of spectrum and um, do, do things actively in all those all those areas. Um, in one of my big interests is neurodevelopmental differences. Um, and um, as someone who I was started to be diagnosed with neurodevelopmental differences 
back maybe, oh, I guess it would be going on about 30 years or so ago. So maybe that would put me when I was like 10 or something, actually even probably a little earlier than that. And um, trying to understand things about it always sort of piqued my interest. Um, dealing with living in a um, not always very neurodiversity friendly world, um, also had lots of challenges and um, also interesting sides to it as well. And so um, I ended up using my strengths to kind of both deal with those kinds of things and also to sort out how to do the things I'm good at without a lot of interference from um, external and internal issues. Um, and um, so that got me driven to really understand the science, the social issues around these kinds of things. Um, and by social, I both mean societal and I also mean like interpersonal. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so since then, I studied uh, psychology and um, then got a master's degree in social work. Um, I'm a um, practicing therapist working towards independent clinical licensure. And um, then after that, I, um, after I started doing that at some point, I wanted to take the opportunity to get back into research. So I ended up um, jumping on an opportunity at university in Vermont back around 2017 with a new doctoral program that was there. Um, and um, I really looked at getting more involved with um, autism research, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, so that's, that's sort of my quick long intro. <laughs> No, thank you so much. And we're going to dive more a little bit into your um, both your career interests and your research interests. But I'm wondering, um, just for anyone that may not be as familiar, could you just describe what you mean when you say neuro neurodevelopmental differences? Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a complex question worthy of an answer. Um, by neurodevelopmental differences, I mean, well. Okay, so on the most basic level, I mean, just like I have a diagnosis of um, autism spectrum disorder, for example, or generally kind of going more towards just calling ourselves autistic people at this point, but, um, and um, the attention, the attention issues and things like that. So, but what they really are is variations on the basic level, there's, there are variations on how the brain is structured and functions for a variety of biological reasons. Um, and so some types of variations happen like after you're born, sometimes they'll start um, appearing when you're an adult. So for example, like, like um, the core symptoms of schizophrenia, for example, are adult on, it's an adult onset mental health condition. Uh, with neurodevelopmental disorders, generally, they really, there's really some aspect of them that exists when you're born. Um, 
and over time you don't necessarily see all the differences immediately unless you look very carefully or some of them just don't really show up as until you sort of grow into situations where you use those parts of your mind or that kind of thing. Um, so that's why they're considered developmental. Um, and um, some neurodevelopmental differences, you can measure the day someone's born if you are, you know, do it carefully enough. And some, some take time to kind of see. Um, and the other aspect of what a neurodevelopmental difference is. So uh, when I was first diagnosed, um, uh, autism what existed in a category called pervasive developmental disorders. Um, and in some ways, I kind of like that term um, in the sense of the fact that because it's not like, you know, you grew up and you had a stroke and one part of your brain just sort of stopped doing what it was doing. Um, it's more like that most of these things affect functions across a lot of different areas of processing and stuff. And so the symptoms we use to make the diagnoses or the features we use to make these diagnoses are just limited parts of, of what the actual experience is and maybe even loosely tied to the underlying biology of it. Thank you. You took a really complicated question and gave <laughs> a, a really clear answer, and I appreciate that. Um, Michael, you mentioned you received your diagnosis when you were maybe around 10 years old, and I'm just curious, did you grow up in Vermont? I grew up in um, West Virginia, um, and um, yeah, I grew up in West Virginia. When did if you you're curious about the diagnosis, like like what the history of that is. Only if you feel inclined. Oh, to yeah, speak. no, no, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting also just from a societal issue of the fact that, you know, like I, I, I was born in a time when this stuff was just evolving when like um, um, the a new set of diagnostic criteria came up pretty shortly around when I was diagnosed with it that made it the, more easier to get one of these diagnoses on paper. And um, I um, grew up in a small private school and I started having learning issues um, where the way that I was taught different things just wasn't working very well. Um, and that's really what spurred getting a evaluation done. Um, and we ended up um, driving like two and a half hours to, uh, Boogie and uh, University of Virginia to get a sort of multi-day assessment kind of done. And that's where they said, you know, they, you know, gave me sort of various kind of learning disability kind of oriented diagnoses. Um, and then they sort of said, and it seems like there may also be um, pervasive, they just called it pervasive developmental disorder. Um, which wasn't a real, isn't actually a diagnosis. There's pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, but they didn't say that. So they were just sort of putting me in that sort of general category. And then um, also, and we think you might have ADHD too. So those are the bigger ones that I tend to talk about, but like really I was also diagnosed with like 
dysgraphia, meaning difficulty in um, uh, uh, like handwriting um, and working with that. Um, uh, I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia, but I really have dyslexia too. Um, I was um, uh, kind of kind of fine motor coordination issues and that kind of thing. So I had this sort of whole host of things that came up at once in that process. And that's what got me there. And eventually I got a Asperger's syndrome diagnosis. And as adult, when it sort of switched over to ASD, I, you know, we switched that over, but. I'm curious when you think back now, what it was like for you to receive all those diagnoses, that information, um, was it helpful to you? Did you feel like it made a difference for your education? Um, so, yes, but, but, but how it was, I think the diagnosis was, was mostly helpful, but I think in some ways it wasn't done as well as it could be. And then um, I also, so, so like with the learning stuff, which is what we were, like what my family originally had taken me there for, we tried to kind of quickly make changes in my schooling situation uh, mm -hmm. with that. And um, so through the public school system, we got, got um, sort of what they call uh, additional services kind of stuff, which was like occup some occupational therapy and speech therapy. And the reality, some of that was fairly useful and some of it was fairly mixed. Um, didn't get really great academic accommodations in a lot of ways with the stuff and never really did, honestly. Um, so since that was part of the purpose of it, I think there's really not nearly enough but either research or, in, or intention, at least at the edu actual applied educational level, to really use that information well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think even today, it's extremely backward, the lack of real systematic modification. And obviously, like you, at like a college level, you see almost, nothing other than sort of like time accommodations being done for like learning differences. Um, and really that's mostly what the, the sort of K through 12 places I did was willing to do at most. And that's really not enough and it's not an appropriate approach to solving some of these things. So um, it was mixed. The autism spectrum thing, we just didn't really know that much what to make of it, honestly, I think at the time. And until I was like 16 and like actually saw some documentaries on this thing, it's like, wait, yeah, that, that really is me. And that starts to explain some things and stuff. It, it just didn't mean that much. And I had talked to some practitioners who had some pretty misleading views on what the autism spectrum was. And so I kind of assumed that they knew what they were talking about. Um, and that maybe I really wasn't on the autism spectrum, but I really was on the autism spectrum. Um, and the ADHD thing, so much rhetoric around things, ideas like it was being overdiagnosed 
addict and drugs were just suppressing sort of function and different sorts that, that I realized over time, like, you know, I'm not saying that medical management of ADHD is always good in the way it's done, but I felt very misled in the end when I started to use um, medications for it as an adult and um, was like, oh, you know, this could have really changed my life in some very positive ways if I had really understood it and used it as a kid in a useful way. So, um, yeah. Do you feel like a lot of your personal experience is what has driven your interest in this, in neurodevelopmental disability, in, um, in this field, in psychology? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 so it's a little bit of a combination of it. Uh, I'm sorry, can you re-ask the question because I lengthened part of what you said. No problem. I was just wondering if your personal experience, you feel like the gaps that some of the gaps that you saw in your own experience of the health system, the education system have led to your current interests um, in being involved in this kind of research and advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I should say something else about this too, um, which is like, well, before I had a diagnosis, I always knew I was different in a lot of ways from a lot of people. Um, and everyone else knew I was different in a lot of ways from other people too. And um, so I did learn things as, you know, we got diagnosed or understood um, that kind of thing. But the other thing about it is, is that like, so like the core features that you get diagnosed with like autism, I do, I do see them as disabilities and in some ways they treat them as things that are useful to like address and change to some degree, like, which is, I think maybe more controversial a thing to say than I wish it was now. Um, but the other side of it is, is that that whole spectrum of um, having a brain that functions differently has a lot of, a lot of different aspects to it. And there's a lot of trade-offs to it. And it's not so simple as like, this is a disability or this is not a disability and this is just great. It, it, it really, really, there's a combination of things, some of which are like really things I value about myself that come from not being neurotypical. And then there's, uh, and so I always understood that I had strengths from things and things that really fed sort of my individual personality and stuff out of it. And what I ran into was a situation where it was like, let's say once I was in the, dealt with the public school system, really they were theoretically willing to try to do kind of remedial stuff around disability things, although not very good remedial stuff usually. Um, but there is never the focus of doing that because like, hey, I'm a, a, a human being who has a life path that needs to be supported in the process. Um, and so the, whole, the areas of strength that I had, you know, kind of really got pretty short shrift in the, the process and really actually also getting like support and accommodations in the areas that 
okay, so the product of what I was doing may have already been beyond typical, but that doesn't mean I don't have a disability in the execution of the things involved in doing those things. And so that really, that that's one version of, let's say, living on the autism spectrum that exists and, and doesn't really get talked about a lot today. So like, like for me, they're really, it's like, I mean, in certain level, like the only reason I care about being able to actually address and change some of the limitations of the third of, of the disabling aspects of some of these things is because they are in the way of like what I want to do and what I believe in and that kind of thing in, in my life or or at least how they interact with my environment is in their way. But I think a combination of both. And so I've really wanted to to help people who have things that are important about them be able to develop them and express them and um, you know like like we have a lot of if you've been exposed to, to background for people listening to this if you've been exposed to background about neurodiversity like there's a lot of talk about like you know there are strengths and unique things we bring to the world but maybe not enough focused on really looking at actually what they are and actually how the how to support their development like consciously um, and I think it's really important to do that from a young age um, and I think actually even over time we may be getting worse at that not even as good as when I was a kid in some ways and in the guise of getting better at dealing with some more of the deficit sort of base kind of aspects of it. And so, yes, it was my own experiences, but also when I got into college and started meeting other people with these diagnoses for the first time, at least the first time I was aware that I was meeting other people with these diagnoses, um, I started to realize like, I also had, in, I had some really, really difficult experiences with all of this um, growing up. And I also had some really very good experiences too. And I think despite the difficulties, my experience is so much better than average, honestly, for people who are affected by this disability as much as I was. And I really wanted to, sort of understand how to kind of resolve that because I, you know, met people who seemed very, like they have really wonderful things about who they are and what they, you know, bring to our community potentially. But like the reality is that a lot of us are depressed and a lot of us don't really have access, really have access to the ways of, expressing those abilities and don't you know and so people who really in most a lot of ways objectively would have an average level of function as a adult human being but just 
in different areas and distributed differently who haven't been able to work, find relationships, um, and other kinds of things like that. And I just really felt like it needed to change. And as I started and continued to actually learn about it, I realized like how how sort of like how ignorant the field has been, honestly, about the actual experiences and perspectives that exist because, you know, at least a lot of us are able to talk. We can potentially articulate these things. A lot of, we have the full spectrum of, of levels of intellectual function that exists in the rest of society. Um, and yet, like when I started this, I couldn't identify a single like major autism researcher on the autism spectrum 50 years after the diagnosis had been sort of described, right? Like, yeah. so I just felt like it was important to change it because things that like typically developing people might consider like, I'll call it face valid, meaning for if you're not familiar with, for people not familiar with science, so much like face validity means like it appears like it might be possible that it's true. The things that may appear possibly true about autistic people to people who don't really maybe have the experiences themselves or even maybe know a single person who really does on a personal level um, can come to conclusions that are wildly inaccurate and they can do research that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars based on premises that like are just not not like I could have told you in two minutes that this wouldn't work or this wouldn't come up with a useful outcome so you said a lot of powerful things and we will talk a little bit more about scientific priorities and and um some of your research interests I I do want to go back and just say I want to correct myself I think I said neurodevelopmental disability and you said neuro developmental difference. And I know you said that from an early age, you felt different um, than a lot of other kids. And I want to go back to um, when you first started to identify with a larger community. I think you mentioned that when you went to college, it was the first time that you um, really were able to have regular interaction with other people who maybe were more neurodevelopmentally diverse. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you picked a college, what the college experience was like, and sort of how you started to first get into advocacy. Well, slight preface. So um, I had said that I went to elementary school at a private school. So I um, went to um, seventh grade, skipped eighth grade, and went to ninth grade at a public school and started having a lot of problems and my health had deteriorated. So I ended up homeschooling through um, high school. So that's one of the things that affected my sort of educational course. And, you know, I ended up focusing my education on areas that I was good at learning and mostly kind of good learning somewhat on my own because I couldn't really get a lot of the kind of support I would have wanted in the areas I had trouble with. And um, and I had so much problems with 
math in the school situation that I never really was able to get. Like it became kind of a PTSD thing, like where I just like looking at a math problem, I'd get a migraine kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so my interest has always been in the sort of science and technology realm as much as anything. Um, and it, there just wasn't any really easy way to bridge the gap to where I'd want to be with that. And so as much of anything, I really, and I had trouble like with organized writing and um, that kind of thing too, even, you know, like typed and stuff, which was better for me. But um, so I had to look for places that would, that I thought that I would function well enough, given the fact that I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to systematically get any kind of better accommodation than more time to do things. Um, that became clear as I looked through colleges. And the other thing is I was having problems with fluorescent lighting, but I think maybe now may have been as much of a sort of a PTSD response as it was some of the, there are real sensory problems with it too, but I think they melded together and started triggering things like migraines for me. And so I had to find a place that would would accommodate that enough for me to go through that. And I just wasn't, my experience with it just wasn't able to sort of kind of prove that to people enough to a place that wouldn't want to actually take it seriously enough would accommodate that. So I looked for places that were a bit more alternative and a bit more flexible in their education, um, not so oriented towards conventional grading and stuff like that. Um, I applied to a few places. There's not really a lot of alter more alternative colleges that exist. And there's, I'd say, even less now than when I applied. But I applied to a, a few places that looked decent. And I got into um, um, Burlington College, which is unfortunately not in existence anymore. Um, but um, it was a great educational experience for me in a lot of ways. Um, I was able to focus on the conceptual aspects of what I wanted to learn. Um, and it was challenging that the main sort of output modality was writing there. Um, but at least that was something I could get help with and work with uh, on a you know time scale that made me able to do it versus like tests or something in class. And um, I did end up becoming a good like writer in the process and stuff with that. But but I guess my, my point is is that like if I had the strength I had and I didn't have the disabilities that I had, I probably wouldn't have been that interested in sort of neurodiversity per se. And I probably wouldn't have taken some of this stuff so seriously in, in society broadly. And honestly, I would have probably become probably a physicist or an engineer or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Well, and I loved how you described it that, you know, we all have things that we want to change about ourselves when we talk about, you know, things that we, we may change, but we also all have interests and strengths that we would like to develop. Um, and that, you know, is the hope of education is that we can do both of those at the same time. 
Um, I think that's a really lovely way to describe it. So, okay, take us a little bit past Burlington College then. How yeah. did you kind of make the next decision about work and, and education? So, so when I was, okay, so when I got out of, of um, BC, I, um, I had double majored there. I did a psych major and an independent consciousness studies major. And the first thing that I had thought of going into was going into consciousness studies as a, as a field. Mm-hmm. And um, so sort of towards the end of that. And Burlington College is not a research-based institution at all. Um, so I hadn't really had a lot of opportunity to have contact with that world at the end. So I, I went to a concert. Uh, the Tucson Conference on Consciousness, which is a great conference, but and started to talk with people about, well, like what, what about graduate school and what would I be looking at doing there? And I started to realize that the opportunity—that's a very small, undeveloped field in a lot of ways—and the opportunities that existed weren't that interesting to me, and would be hard to get into with the background that I had. Mm-hmm. And so my other big interest was the autism spectrum stuff. And so I was like, well, okay, um, I will apply to a bunch of research-based programs um, that, um, that sort of my qualifications sort of theoretically fit for and, um, you know, that are researching autism in ways that I thought was interesting. And um, I did that. And um, so as I got through some of those applications, I was like, okay, so now what are my, what are my, which was hard to do too, because I had to deal with things like DREs and stuff, and they were really horrific to deal with at the time about disability stuff, and possibly still are. Um, I I don't know, but um, were you able to get accommodations for the GRE? I was, but by the time I did, it actually. It, it actually like made it so that I couldn't even get some of the applications I was supposed to do in time. And it took so much time just to even get some of the disability accommodations dealt with and stuff that it um, also took a while to like study for this stuff and really kind of be prepared and stuff. So one of the things a lot of people don't realize is one of the huge issues around disabilities is just how recalcitrant places are about really providing accommodations and how much legwork that they require to do things that that should be super easy. Um, so anyway, my point is is that like I got applications in on time maybe to two to four of those those places. And then then I was like, well, what's my backup at this point? So I started looking at what my options were that were I could still apply to once I got through the things that were most important to me. And I applied to a couple clinical programs at uh, West Virginia University, um, which was, as they say, more of a backup plan than anything else. And I didn't get into any of, I didn't even get interviewed for any of the autism ones that I did, which I think is interesting because I actually did have a decent background and I talked about being on the autism spectrum and you know my interest in those kinds of things and stuff. and. I honestly felt it was rather rude for a place to not take enough interest to at least find out if I was a decent fit at that point, if that's what they're 
whole program is, you know. Yeah, it's about. surprising. Yeah, yeah. So I, anyways, I was like, well, I could try the applying to these things again, or I could um, take a, which would take me at least a year. And I don't know if I would be any more accepted than before, although I could be do GREs and things like that, but like, um, or I could take two years and do the social work degree. So the social work program was the one program I actually got into that I had applied to. And, and I was like, and, you know, maybe I can actually get some research experience because that was definitely the biggest feedback that I'd gotten as well as, you know, that people want research experience to do research. Um, and um, so I took that the program. I did everything I could to both get research experience during a uh, clinically oriented degree um, and also um, to get background in autism spectrum stuff and focus my, my work in that area. And so I ended up um, doing both of those things. Um, and um, so that was my, that, 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 that was what happened there. And then afterwards I was, you know, but when I'm in the middle of a program like that too, like my ability to focus on like what the next thing is, isn't that good realistically. And so I decided to go ahead and try clinical work before trying to go back towards research for a while. And can I ask, I'm yeah. curious how, your clinical work in social work has how that sort of changed your engagement with your interest in autism spectrum disorders. Yeah, um, it, a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it um, well, it was interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, by that point, like I'd gotten so many different perspectives and exposure on things, and you know, so much also practice, like while living as an adult right just with it that that was also changing my perspective on things but but doing clinical stuff um when i started i did did uh did some kind of uh intensive mental health things for an agency first when i started but then when i really really decided to become a therapist and that didn't work out super great for me for various reasons and stuff. I mean, one of the things I realized as I was doing it is that like the emotional impact of, of um, working with people in sometimes really difficult situations and situations that maybe overlap challenges that I really was still having or, you know, dealing with in different ways and dealing with even just the prejudices of parents and other people in the situation was, very difficult for me and I really couldn't handle like really doing that full time without a lot of sort of work on sort of how to be able to work with that. So that's one thing that sort of kind of changed my interest and perspective with things. So the other thing is, so when that first job wasn't really the right thing in the end, um, I decided to create a, a private practice and um, uh, I, I really thought about like how, how do we work with other neurodiverse people? Um, and I created something called the Mental and Social Health Center was my idea. And my idea was to eventually make it into an interdisciplinary practice. And 
um, really try to offer a variety of stuff like community-based services and, and, you know, counseling, but things like occupational therapy or, you know, um, speech services or something, but in, in kind of high quality, like neurodiversity friendly ways. So that was my idea. Um, the reality of it was, and my, my first thing was just to be able to do it and do the work and figure out how, how things work. So I went into it without having any direct traditional psychotherapy experience yet. Um, I mean, the thing that I did before that was basically like family counseling to a degree and stuff, but, but this was, was different and it was interesting. So I found that bringing in, in experiences around sort of like sensory things and, um, that kind of thing was really helpful. Um, I think it's one of the more underappreciated aspects of, um, of the condition um and every so often people try to like remove the whole category from the diagnosis um and in fact i think they did that with the latest icd criteria yet again which i, I just think it's a really bad direction to go because it's so functionally relevant to how we experience things i realize i'm giving long sort of long sort of complex answers and you know well, it's a complex topic and no, no, I think you're bringing such an interesting perspective because you have occupied all these different spaces and roles, um, both personally and in your work and in your own experience with the education system. Um, and I, so I want to go back then to, um, I, I do want to ask a little bit more about research and I know some of your interests in sort of design and, and sensory awareness um, but I wanted to ask first about, I know you said in college, you, you started to, um, interact with more individuals, certainly in your work, you were, um, serving a lot of families and individuals with autism. Um, I'm wondering sort of when you first saw yourself becoming an advocate and, and what your ideas around advocacy have, how they have changed sort of over time. Great question. Um, so so the, I'll break that down, I guess, into two pieces. Okay, so first, first is the question of when I first saw myself as becoming an advocate. Um, I saw myself as becoming an advocate when I was a teenager. Um, so actually really before that realm, at least in terms of self-advocacy, but I always knew that I wanted to address the societal issues around it. And and even before I you know, saw myself doing disability advocacy specifically, it's, you know, in one way or another was something that I really wanted to do in some way, as long as I can remember, like it was always like just kind of part of my personality. I'm just going to grab a shirt. No problem. Um, yeah. So, so I'd always, I'd always had, I'd always had the interest in, 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 in it in some way or another. Um, once I went to college, um, the, I did get more experience doing it, but more hardcore. Um, in, and really, I had the intention from the beginning of like, I mean, aside from choosing a little bit of an alternative place to go, I also wanted to choose a place where I could potentially influence the function of, of it and um, really be involved. And so being somewhere really small, I, I I decided to take on any kind of student roles I could where 
I would have access to like in impact stuff with it and learn about that. And so that's that's one side. The other is that I um I got involved in a there was a pretty active like electronic community of um, mostly parents of people on the autism spectrum at the time in, in the Burlington area. Um, and I I got on their listserv and kind of, you know, introduced everyone and then, you know. And so I, I, I met one person who really through his mother, who was a, um, a older, somewhat older autistic adult through that and became friends with them. And also just really tried to understand, well, like what are the effects of this and stuff. So like at the time he was in a group home situation um, and for mental health group home oriented. Um, and over time he ended up getting his own apartment and um, that kind of thing there. Um, but so that was, that, that shaped some of my interest really having his experiences I met. Um, one or two people with different neurodevelopmental differences at my college and that sort of shaped it. So like in terms of actually doing direct advocacy for other people, um, as soon as I really started having conversations with people with similar experiences and who were um, who are having difficulties with things, I really wanted to apply the skills that I had to giving them ways to address things in their own life and also just using my own ability to actively directly advocate for other people or, or advocate for the changes that were needed for the people that were around me. Um, and I would say like, so I'm a system thinker naturally, like, so although historically like one-on-one -on -one social stuff hasn't always been that easy for me. Um, understanding like more like group dynamic social interactions and like kind of things at a organizational level and stuff is more intuitive. And um, like, so I'm kind of a strategic thinker and um, you know, like, even even like when I was like a teenager, I thought like that I would find like maybe like like studying law interesting. And I also realized that I would probably, you know, just bang my head against the wall every day if I was a lawyer with how much I would be bugged by it too. So, you know, but just giving a perspective, but like I policy was always interesting to me too. Um, and so I guess one of my strengths is like to be able to learn a lot of different conceptual and structural stuff about a lot of different systems and ways of thinking and kind of trying to tie them together to solve problems. Um, so that's, you know, I think where some of the neurodiversity strengths come in with it, but yeah. Yeah. How did you um, first hear about CDCI and, and become involved working with CDCI? 
Um, so that let's see, how did I first do hear about it? Um, I I think I was I think I was thirteen when when I was I don't know if it's how I first did, but when I first sort of started really looking at it was when I was a student at UVM and looking at different disability oriented resources and stuff around the um, university. And so if you search on University of Vermont and disability, CDCI will quickly come up. Um, and so I think that's how I sort of first really, really kind of became aware of it. And I did a training with, um, that's sort of co-hosted from the Vermont Family Network and Vermont Developmental Disabilities Community uh, Committee, or I forget what it's called, but anyways, they they have something called the Vermont Leadership Training, and I did that, and you know, again, started looking at actually like maybe applying to some committees and stuff to be actively involved in in the area to sort of do things. So um, once I was once I was out of out of college and had some time that I wanted to put into it, I really wanted to have some way of being connected into the the sort of community of of this kind of thing. And I um, applied to join the, the community advisory council there. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what what it's like to be on a community advisory council and and what you do? Well, so um, uh, I think what it's like depends on like exactly what role you choose to sort of take on. But the very basic thing is is that you know we meet a few like let's say four or five times a year or something formally, and um, um, the you know staff at CDCI presents um, you know some of what's going on and some of the topics they're looking at and that kind of thing, and it's sort of being on the committee, it's sort of an opportunity to provide feedback with that, but also also an opportunity to get to know the people on the committee and also also the people who are presenting things to the committee and, and discover if there's opportunities you want to engage in more interaction with, like what we're doing now. Um, so I, I see it personally as like, it's both a vehicle for like, like formally filling a advisory function, but informally just to know what's going on and to um, give input on things so that um, things can sort of evolve and change and stuff. Um, and you've been involved now for how long? I think it feels like about two years or so. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, I'm also I, involved with the uh, 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 UVM Autism Collaborative, which has some overlap and stuff and things too. And so that also blends together in my mind sometimes a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with the collaborative? So I joined that after I was a student there and, you know, when I was on the sort of committee and um, I just wanted to kind of get my sort of get back involved with sort of research oriented stuff and and um, good sort of bringing an autistic perspective to the picture. And um, so that was that was interesting. I 
I think at first when I was doing it, that you know, it's kind of a new thing, and there's a variety of levels of whether people were actually really collaborating with research or just maybe just talking about different things they were doing in the the place and stuff. And um, I felt like there still wasn't a lot of really sort of participatory research being done um, through with, in terms of a lot of UVM autism researchers. Um, though it varies a little bit depending on what kind of research and stuff. And um, so I really wanted to also give input and and see like some evolution towards both just sort of more organization about um, having really good research done at the university and also more integration of like, how do we capture these, how do we capture the perspectives of autistic people and get them presented in a meaningful way. Um, so sometimes, sometimes I think we run, a lot of times in my experience in life, like if I go in a situation and say, hey, I have this experience, this is a problem, I know it's an issue, like there's either a direct or instinctive response people have like, well, you know what, you're one person, you have one perspective, it's like, but, but that perspective may have had 2000 hours of, of education and focus behind it, but you know, but you might not notice that or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, I mean, but also, so I think there's, there's in some ways the power in numbers about getting participatory research done and having things echoed by different people. And even just knowing that like something that seems like it's very clear from experience, is it right? Is it, just limited to one portion of the autism spectrum or me personally or something and they don't realize it. Um, so I think I can can say that I, I think that what I brought to is part of the reason that we started really doing some larger participatory research projects out of out of UVM and um, I've ended up being like a sort of part of one of a couple of those projects now um, as a sort of um, limited employee kind of with it. And um, it's been a really great experience to do that and have some chance to participate in a way that's structured so that like it isn't super overloading to the difficulties I have in the situation and using some of what I'm better at in the process too, so. So I'm gonna ask an unfair question because it's such yeah. a big question, but um, you're raising this issue of how to make research more accessible, more representative, more inclusive. Um, and I wonder if you might be willing to just share some thoughts about where we should be heading. Um, you've mentioned the need for more participatory research. Um, you've mentioned how narrow really the pool of researchers is, that it's not very representative. Um, yeah, what would you like to see as some of the next sort of steps to make research more accessible for more people? Well, I think the biggest, most long, long-term thing is that the education to be a researcher in a conventional sense of being a researcher needs to be accessible to everyone who 
has the desire to do it really. Um, and by accessible, I both mean like literally like, can you even qualify for whatever it is, right? So like my experience of, of not even getting into the program was like one, one piece of it, but, but then it's all the, it, so, so there's a lot of levels to it, right? So it's like, if you haven't got an adequate support for, you know, all your K through 12 education, and then, you know, doesn't have a conventional background, like why is it required to support anyone who doesn't have a conventional background to really be successful in shifting towards a research environment? And I think just that level of divert, really promoting that level of diversity and research oriented sort of programs would be a major advancement for research in general, even for people who don't have a condition or something associated with it, because it brings a diversity of life experiences into it. And so one of the problems is, can be that research can be so expensive and difficult to get into, that that may be all that someone's actually been able to do in their life, to the data of where they're doing. And, and so knowing, so it's very, like in a societal experience, it's expensive to have the resources put in to, for people to be able to learn different things, try them, and then not use them in ways that are considered highly productive in those areas. But there's a benefit to having the opportunity to do that sometimes and to try things and change things and stuff. So I think one of the things, you know, is that having more experimental mindset and like willingness in, in certainly the educational system to say, well, like, hey, like you might not bring something that's super conventional, but if you bring something unconventional, how do we really support you in that situation? And um, would, would be a major shift. And I think even if it's not through a conventional educational path, you know, later on, like now with like trying to just get people in the community involved in a specific research projects or something to start with, it's the same mentality is sort of required of, of, of having the flexibility and adaptation to say, okay, like you may not be able to work a conventional work schedule. How do we wrap, provide the wraparound stuff to make this work? Or um, like you may not be able to count on having the same level of ability to focus on a task at a specific time that you would want to. How do we make this adapt around it? And so some of it, some of it exists at the institutional level. Some of it a problem with things like funders and stuff. And and I, I, I think eventually we need to talk with places like NIH and stuff about how they conduct things like grants and stuff and really, you know, make some of that more accessible too. Um, there's a whole nother level though, where research is, there's a lot of focus on precedent with research essentially, basically. Um, and that's not exactly how the research community talks about it, but like, if you're trying to design research, the easiest way to do it is to mostly copy someone else's. And, um, it doesn't mean that you can't apply for a grant to do something really original with like NIH and get it, but it does mean that 
it takes an incredible amount of time to work the basic theory of things and to find the justifications for doing something that like experience might tell you is important if you can't if there's not more room to cite experience and to talk about experience in the process. Um, so that's part of the reason I think it's just so important to do some of this kind of qualitative stuff that, that you know, I, I'm involved with and haven't described, but like to get, get some of those things and say, hey, this is a reason now to test this and to, to look at it in using other research methods and stuff because we're limited by that paradigm of, of the, you know, like, you know, precedent. And so the other point about this is like, I think I think for, let's say like a, a institution like U UVM, it, it, it's, not, it's not super easy to do this kind of stuff in some ways too. Like the cost of living in most places that you can do good research is high. So you have to be able to pay for people to have a reasonable lifestyle if they're researchers and stuff. And then you have to be able to pay to do the research activities too, right? But then also it's like good science really requires room for creativity and experimentation and, and taking chances and things like that. And I, so I think part of the problem is that we we need society to recognize that it's important to fund things in a way that that's possible, and we don't have to be super conservative about all the approaches being done to things because, like, it's lots of people scrambling for a very tiny amount of resources to do something. Right. Um, so can I ask you to talk a little bit about some of the research that you are involved in and some of your own research interests? I know you mentioned some of the qualitative components. Yeah, so the research I'm currently involved with um, is um, it, it's, it's um, connected with, um, it's funded by the Patient-Centered um, Outcomes Institute, um, which um, is something that, that's sort of newer was created by the Affordable Care Act. So a lot of people aren't as familiar with it as something like NIH, but it's actually, I believe, a bigger funder now than NIH is, um, just in terms of how much money that, that, that it grants. So it's, you know, I learned about that kind of when I was a doctoral student, but um, it, um, but what we're doing now is sort of starting to lay some of the basic frameworks of like participatory research in, in the Vermont community. So the first thing we wanted to do is actually collect information on what people feel like they need to be involved as research partners. Um, so that's the first project that we've done is basically to try to, con to conduct some focus groups and other sort of qualitative methods of of getting feedback from people in the community, from including from from parents and people on the autism spectrum, um, and um, sometimes sort of providers or other people too. Um, so that's one of the first projects was just basically asking, basically, well, what what do you need to show up? What will make you feel comfortable? Like, how do we do this correctly? Um, and then the second project that 
um, involved with is around uh, healthcare transition. Um, so that's really transitioning from child to adult healthcare. But effectively, that means you have to understand what's happening with adult healthcare too, and child healthcare, and how to make it work better in both of those things. So my interest in some ways is a lot about just improving both those systems. I think the transition process is bad, but like if the systems worked right, that's not not the biggest problem, honestly, mm. uh, the transition itself. But I think I think like our society is afraid, doesn't like to acknowledge adults with disabilities in a certain way like um and so it's easier the closer you have it to children who are perceived as like more sort of innocent the easier it is to get people to want to like embrace solving a problem and the other reason is that people like want to um want to uh make problems go away early which is in some ways if you can and they're just problems and you're not getting rid of something important that's fine I, I agree with that you know like I, I think it's great to try to support speech development in young children and stuff and and make it so that people aren't dealing with the sort of cumulative consequences of things but anyway the um so we're looking at healthcare transition partly because that that, that, that you know there was an opportunity to do that that was created somewhat externally and we we took it and we're making it the sort of best that we can with with that paradigm, um, which is a good enough starting place, in my opinion, to start asking these questions and stuff. And so really the other component of all this is just all the internal stuff that goes into figuring out how do we do this stuff? How do we do it right? Like, where do we run into challenges and stuff? So we're also effectively really researching that from our own internal process of like, you know, people, the people involved with the um, neurodevelopmental research at UVM really haven't done this stuff before, mostly at least. And so we're kind of learning and inventing stuff as we go along. And I think it's actually like, even the sort of subtle background stuff that we're doing is pretty pioneering. I think that in the areas we're looking at, like we really didn't find equivalent projects mostly in the past. There were some around healthcare transition, but mostly it's not been done that much. Wow. So my research interests are are broad. Um, and like what kind of research I'm sort of interested, I'm sort of interested in being involved in a variety of things. Um, but like, so definitely I'm interested in facilitating the existence of participatory research and and getting that going. Um, and getting things documented in terms of different ways people experiencing things. And my interest there is partly to make sure it's done well, because I think often if you don't ask questions really carefully, like you're not really giving people an opportunity to express themselves. They haven't had a lot of practice talking about a specific issue and you can not see the depth of what's happening. So that's why one of the reasons why I want to be actively involved in that kind of thing is to just make sure it works right. My personal interests, though, also go a lot into more like the realm of like 
more neurocognitive demands of, of things. So like, ideally, I would love to see more use of like, um, I think some of the things that inspired me when I was really trying to look at going that direction years ago was um, like, there's been a lot of research using things like functional imaging of brain processes and stuff, but, but virtually nothing done to actually utilize that information and nothing done to make that research even useful to the research participants. Um, and I feel like there's a powerful set of cognitive tools, cognitive tools and even, you know, like research tools that could be used to help better understand individual people in certain ways that have been really, I think the potential of that's been really misunderstood by the research community and honestly ignored. And um, we, so I would really like to see, it's like, well, so it's like, okay, so let's say with something like attention, for example, I think that's one of the areas I struggle most at now in my life is to be able to intentionally focus on specific things and really be able to be productive in them on some level of a schedule with it, which is really helpful, even aside from all the external demands and maybe over demands on that kind of thing to be able to say, hey, I really like this. I'm going to choose to put aside five hours at 2 p.m. and do this activity and to be able to count on my brain working on well with that at that time would be helpful. And I think there's a lot that we can do to understand what the barriers to different cognitive processes are and um, how to facilitate them and how to accommodate them that we're not really using the research tools we have to do. Um, so like, if I really had the ability to really do what I'd want to and have the resources I'd want to, which would probably include a lot of ability to delegate pieces of things, um, I would probably, I'd probably try to get into some of that area and really advance the development of it and stuff. Um, but I guess if, if I had my personal dream, I would really be able to facilitate a program of research and just try to really integrate things across different disciplines and tools and other kinds of stuff, build good theory around things. So there's no pathway for theoretical research that really exists in this field. But, but a lot of times, like, you know, like all the research that's been done is just integrated sort of haphazardly at the beginning and ends of experimental research papers. That's not really, I think, how we should be doing it. Um, and so like, that's the other kind of thing too, is like building really just trying to understand everything building theory around things that, that, that integrates like knowledge and then communicating it at different levels of, of communication that really provide things from even very simplified plain language stuff to um, complex stuff that gets into the full depth of, of, of research, but is as friendly for a 
either a layperson or a person not familiar with that specific area of research as possible um, to do and understand things and stuff. Um, and the other piece of that sort of communication side of things is I think a lot of times in my field, things are thought of in terms of services and stuff. And, and I think for a lot of us on the autism spectrum, information can be the service sometimes. Like if we have information that really tells us ways of looking at things differently and trying things on our own, do it yourself is a really powerful tool set that avoids a lot of potential conflict with providers. It avoids a lot of funding issues. It avoids a lot of kinds of things. And if we have things accessible, I, I think that would be part of the big change of things too. That feels like a really positive note to end on. I think we could probably talk for hours and maybe we'll come back and, and talk again. But um, I, I just really want to thank you for your time, for sharing so honestly um, from your own perspective, as well as um, just your, your role within our organization. And we really appreciate the work that the Advisory Council does to help inform the design and, and the direction that the center's work takes. Um, yeah, I guess, is there anything else that that you want to say at this juncture or shall I turn the yeah, I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a good place to kind of wrap things up. I, I say though that it, it's been definitely nice to have the opportunity to talk about some of this. And um, there were things I think we were thinking of talking about that we haven't had as much opportunity to as as we could but like I've enjoyed the opportunity to just really express some of these ideas and stuff and I think it's not easy to talk about this stuff fast because there's a lot of experiences to communicate about that don't overlap most people's everyday lives and um, so I do hope that we can you know potentially do more of these conversations and um, because I think the way we did it today is, is, is great. And it takes a long time to get at some of the most valuable things. Um, so yeah, um, I look forward to any you know future version of this we do. And I hope anyone who's watching this has gotten a lot out of this. And um, so um, yeah. You've been listening to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We've been talking and listening to Experiences with Disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. The music for our show is by Soul June, an audio library release. This show is a production of the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. You can find out more about the center by visiting go.uvm.edu slash cdci. Thanks for listening. <laughs>